0: Welcome to On the Road to Discovery. If you care about education, this podcast is for you. I'm Heidi Golger and with me is my colleague, Sarah Elwell. We are passionate advocates for the equitable education of all students. Today we're discussing student accessibility to culturally diverse reading materials with our special guest Nijma Isad, Manager of Library Programs for the District of Columbia Public Schools.
1: Thank you so much for joining us, Nishma.
0: Could thank you tell you for our having li- me.
1: Thank you for being here. Could you tell our listeners a little about your role and how your work relates to the podcast topic this week, culturally diverse resources in school?
2: Um, yeah, so... As the library manager for DC Public Schools, which is, I'm I'm new to this role. I just started in July um, of last year. But prior to that, I was a librarian at Hart Middle School, a DC public school for six years. Um, and I've just been a lifelong reader. And um, being from Chicago, I feel like it's been touted as one of the most segregated major cities in the United States. So you're kind of or at least for me been acutely aware of my place um what I saw and what I didn't see in terms of representation so as I looked and thought about a career it was I was always mindful and even as I raised my daughter I was always mindful of representation and ensuring that she saw herself but also she saw an accurate composite of what the world was because we're we're not just one people. And I think in America, oftentimes it's like, it's either black or white, but it's not, right? There's so many other cultures and types of people that create America and they they deserve to have a voice. And so as the manager of library programs, I work with two other people, the director, and the acquisitions manager like we're always mindful of ensuring that we are creating inclusive spaces where everyone can feel seen, heard and valued and you know one of the one of the places that that's most prominent is with the books that we we purchase for our library programs and the programming that we bring to our library programs
1: thank you for sharing like how that dynamic dialogue, that dynamic representation, like how important that is to young people um, and to even within your own family.
0: On MSNBC's The Beat with Ari Melber, Ari noted in a comment that book banning is a far-right battle against equality. What is your advice to educators who are struggling to provide students with diverse voices in this heated political climate?
2: So just today, we I don't know if I can say this, but just today we we had a parent who who challenged a book. Um, there was it was a graphic novel, and um, in the graphic novel, there were there were two middle-aged girls kissing, right? And so if you think about the books that maybe you read in middle school where it was maybe a traditional boy and girl kissing, like that wasn't that didn't seem too risque. But because there were two girls who were kissing and kind of exploring middle age feelings, it was a problem. And um, the parent kind of said, you know, are you pushing pornographic content? Are you trying to groom students? And I think that America as a whole, like collectively, there's a lot of xenophobia. And anything that kind of challenges a traditional way of life, which is Anglo-Saxon, Protestants, it it, it becomes an issue in the sense that why are you trying to change what, what we've become accustomed to and the way of life that is comfortable for us? I think having conversations about people's differences, and I feel like it's easier now because you know, almost every TV show has a character whose lifestyle is a bit different, whose culture is a bit different. Um, I remember when Ellen, Ellen DeGeneres came out on her show like 20 something years ago, the the world was going to hell in a handbasket. and And now years later, we're still here. People's differences, their sexual preferences, their, their cultural experiences, they only add value. And, and we need to frame that in, that in that way.
0: That was Those are wonderful examples. And that also goes into our next question regarding what happened in Florida. So recently, Florida issued a revised lesson text regarding the history of Rosa Parks. So in the revised version, any mention of race is removed. So for example, in one section, the revised text says she, meaning Rosa, was told to move to a different seat. In the original lesson, it reads, quote, she was told to move to a different seat because of the color of her skin. Now, how do you think this changes the impact of what students learn and how they learn about history?
2: This is, this is interesting because, um, A few days ago, I was introduced, I was interviewing a potential librarian, and she talked about sharing the poem, Undefeated, by Kwame Alexander, and there's a part where it talks about the Birmingham church bombing, and the librarian mentioned how when students asked more questions, she felt uncomfortable because she was unsure what parents would say, whether they wanted their students learning about that type of violence, and why it happened, but in reality, like if, if you're going to talk about the violence that occurred during the civil rights movement, then you have to talk about why there was a need for a civil rights movement. And if you're going to talk about that, then you're going to need to go back to what led to a group of people to seek civil rights. And that inevitably takes you back to slavery. And it inevitably takes you back to a conversation about race. And so if we, if we think about Rosa Parks, and if you take out the fact that she was a black woman, then why did she need to move to a different seat? Like, can you imagine just telling students, well, there was a woman on a bus and she had to move. Why? Like children are curious and they're gonna get, they're gonna force you to give them that answer. And the more you prolong it and the more you kind of take the circuitous route, the answer is still the answer. Because for me, as inquisitive as I was, if you just tell me there was a woman on a bus and she was forced to move her seat, why couldn't she sit there? Is it because she was a woman? No, it wasn't because she was a woman, then why did she have to move? And it just becomes this 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 whole issue. And so when we take out important facts that lead to the reason why something happened, if we water it down, like you lead students to search for that information on their own and they don't have the guidance of an educator to bring those conversations into the forefront in a way that helps them to understand and contextualize what happened and why it happened.
1: Thank you for framing that Nishma in in that way, where we're really depriving students of an opportunity to be informed, right? To be potential activists and advocates in in the future, because it's not the race that is the issue, it's the racism, right? And so I think that, when we deprive them of that information, of that opportunity to learn alongside others in a classroom or a library, it really is a disservice to to our young people. I also, really think it
2: is. And mm-hmm. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but no, just go like ahead, thinking go ahead. about like critical race theory and you mm-hmm. have, there's this whole conversation around how certain students are going to feel bad. Like, oh, critical race theory makes white students feel bad about their history. And, and why should that be the case? Because why are we thinking that white students wouldn't align with the Quakers or the abolitionists? Like, why why do we just assume that because you present a history in context that students are going to side with those who enslaved other people and not who helped to end the enslavement?
1: Yes, history has its eyes on us. (laughs) Also noted on MSNBC's The Beat, um, the number of banned books doubled from 2021 to 2022. So, what what do you make of the fact that most banned books are by authors of color and or LGBTQIA plus?
2: I I touched on this a bit earlier, but I think that. Some in America are extremely xenophobic, and because of that, they view anything that is opposed to their beliefs as an attack on traditional values. Um, I think that there are some who harbor a sense of guilt or even a sense of entitlement, and because of that, they don't want to hear stories that kind of oppose that narrative. And I, I, I had a professor in college who who talks about the importance of mythology for cultural pride and preservation? So there's this mythology surrounding America, and it's it's overwhelmingly Anglo-Saxon, it's Protestant, and it's heterosexual. So anything that is counter to that, I feel like it's just viewed with suspicion and it's it's viewed with fear. And I I was watching um Tony Morrison's documentary on um PBS, it's called The Pieces I Am. And she said that basically parents have every right to to censor and to monitor what their children have access to, but they don't have a right to censor what my child has access to. Because, you know, just because you feel like your child shouldn't read Sula or Beloved, right? It doesn't mean that I, I feel the same way. And I feel like Limiting access to to children's books because you don't like them. I think that that's kind of rooted in white supremacy—the idea that a select few people get to determine what's better, what's best for the whole.
1: Yes, and I cannot believe that Beloved continues to be one of the books that is most challenged um, in the nation. I know it is a book that changed my life. I read it twice for my AP English class. Um, And it is the best of all the parts of us, the good, the bad, the ugly. And Mm
2: -hmm. it's, you know, um, when I was in college, there was this this old movie that we kind of like rediscovered, or was rediscovered, and it was called Reefer Madness. And it was it was a movie about yes. like all of the pitfalls of mm-hmm. smoking marijuana. And if you smoke marijuana, then this is what's gonna happen to you. But you know, clearly, that there it was very much white suburban youth and them kind of rebelling. And this is why we don't want them exposed to these things because then the world is going to spiral out of control and the youth are our future and we need to contain them. It was the same thing with rock and roll. It was the same thing with jazz. It was the same thing with beatnik culture. You know, all of these things that are seen as opposite of what those traditional values are. Like, I feel like as a whole, society doesn't entrust their youth to experience life, but then also move past that and continue to grow and flourish and be productive members of society. Like there's there's very little faith in the youth, which is why people are trying to control their exposure. When experiencing different cultures, like, why are there so many Thai restaurants or Ethiopian restaurants like we we want we we want our children to experience different cultures, but we can't just do it in these um confined ways if that makes sense so yes. if, if, if mm-hmm. I'm reading a book about um what was a book recently that people had an issue with uh it's, it's not inside out, but there there was an oh American born Chinese, right? Like that oh. was another
0: mm-hmm. graphic novel. I remember novel. reading that at
2: Catholic. Right. That was another graphic novel. And there were some people who were opposed to that for, for various different reasons. And it's just like, how do you say that you want to have a world that's encompassing and yet you're controlling how children have access to the world. And I I understand things should be age appropriate, but to ban something completely because you don't feel it's appropriate at all is problematic.
1: And I'm glad you pointed out like the power of young people in this, you know, especially as I watch the young legislators in Tennessee, which is also a state that is grappling with this book banning issue as well the young people will rise up. (laughs) So for these young people, could you share some strategies as to how you support librarians with providing access to culturally diverse resources that are both mirrors and windows, as we often hear, but even portals to other galaxies, universes, realities?
2: I think one of the best tools right now is teachingbooks.net and it's a it's a website where we have Asian American Pacific Islander month coming up in May if if I don't know about new books with respect to that topic, I can go on that website and I can select cultural experience And there. There's a plethora, like you can choose African-American, you can choose African global, you can even choose LGBTQIA, you can choose disabilities. Like there there are all of these different topics that you can choose from. You can narrow it down by genre, um, grade level, age, and it'll give you a list of books related to that topic. Um, They have interactive activities. Sometimes it'll be a recording of the book being read by the author or an interview the author did about the book, the content, their um, worksheets to supplement or to add to the reading of the book. Um, There's even like a jigsaw puzzle about the cover so students can put that together. Like It's a really um, well-created, well-researched site. And so if you, if there's any topic with respect, if you feel like your collection isn't diverse enough, say you don't have enough books for Ethiopian students, you can go on there and you can select um, that cultural experience and it'll tell you all of the books and it's, they update it very often. Um, It's pretty up to date. it'll tell you all of the books either written by an author of Ethiopian descent or with a character of Ethiopian descent. So you can help you flesh out your collections.
1: Thank you. I just bookmarked it on my browser. So (laughs) thank you for sharing that resource. Mm
0: -hmm. And earlier on in this um, podcast, you did mention interaction with parents. And so just going on that note regarding family engagement, what are your recommendations to engage parents in a positive manner with librarians, with the educators moving forward?
2: Um, I think that librarians and parents can work in tandem to create a culture of reading. When I worked at the DC Public Library, we did outreach to some of the high schools in the area, Baloo and Anacostia, they had daycares. And we talked to those teen parents about how to read to their students, because Um, like there's not to say that there's an art to it, but there's just sometimes that could be something that a teenage parent doesn't think about the importance of reading to my child. And there's a study that says that children, um, of college educated parents, they start kindergarten with 5,000 words in their vocabulary, whereas children or students with, um parents who didn't go to college maybe only start with 500 words that's a difference of 4500 words and how do we how do they catch up so just teaching them about like having conversations with your students like when you're walking to school and you see a blue car well what letter does blue start with what type of blue is it? There are different types of blue. Is it sky blue? Is it the blue of the ocean? So just having those conversations where you're reading, you're engaged, um, you tell stories and you don't just give maybe one word answer. So for the little kids, you should speak in complete sentences and you should change up your vocabulary. So don't just say, was today a good day? Say today, was today an awesome day? Was it a wonderful day? What's the difference between awesome and wonderful? Just kind of developing that language at a young age. And then like when you're in the car, listening to audiobooks. and maybe when you go home, show the actual book and discuss like what was said in the audio book, find that chapter so that you can go over it with um, your student in the house. And just creating a library, it's really important. And whether or not you check out books online via Overdrive, um, DCPS students have access to Sora, but just ensuring that you're allowing time and you're showing the importance of reading. And a lot of adults say, I don't like to read. I don't think your child should ever hear you say that. You should never say what you don't like to do and instead model how you can do it take time where you all are reading together.
0: That's, that's wonderful. And your mommy of an example, I was on the train one morning, and a young mom got on with her child, and they sat down and immediately she got his book out. And they began reading together on the way to school on the way to work. Because as you know, people are really busy. And they took that time, you can tell he knew what to do. That's something they did every morning on the train. And he read the whole story. And she asked him questions. And this is like a four year old child. And he answered in complete sentences. So great point. Thank you for that.
2: Yeah.
1: Thank you for sharing that example and these affirming practices that families can easily undertake at home and in partnership with public libraries, with with school libraries. Um, and you know, the name of this podcast is On the Road to Discovery, right? So we're on this, this pathway to understanding. And so our signature question, Nishma that we ask all our guests is on the particular podcast topic. Where do we grow from here? What words of advice do you have for us?
2: Um, Where do we grow from here? I think that as curious people, um, we should continue to be curious. We should continue to be open. And, you know, it's interesting, Sarah, because I, I was I was thinking about you recently. I was at a program and um, we were asked to give our pronouns. And I remember when you led a WTU teacher leader program and you asked that and some of a few of the older teachers were like, I'm not doing that, but because that's not necessarily their level of comfort. It doesn't mean that as you interact with students and their self-awareness changes, we need to be supportive of that. So we need to continue to model how open we are to the diverse things happening. And I think when we talk about diversity, we really, there's this idea that it's just about race, but it's about so many more things. And so as adults, as leaders, we need to continue to educate ourselves, and we need to continue to be open to the changes that the youth that we interact with are experiencing, and we need to affirm them. And the way that we do that is just continue to be open-minded, continue to share resources, share knowledge, and be understanding. And I think that as we get older as a gener- as a society, we become less understanding, forgetting how the older people may have looked at us. Like I, I remember when rap came out and older people were like, that's not music. That where is the instrumentation? And now it's it's so much a part of, of life. It's 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 everywhere. Like our students 30 years later are still wanting to be a part of, of the hip-hop culture. And so for the people who were saying that's not going to last, and we have so many millionaires who've been who've come out of poverty, who are now giving back to the community because of that thing that they said wasn't going to last. So I just think that as we get older, we need to continue to be open and mindful, reassuring and supportive of our youth.
1: That is a fabulous way to conclude this program. Thank you, Nishma Asad. Thank you, Heidi Goger, and signing off.